seeing every day new things which the state ought to do. The next thing is to see clearly how it ought to do them. This is why there should be a science of administration, which shall seek to straighten the paths of government, to make its business less unbusinesslike, to strengthen and purify its organization, and to crown its duties and dutifulness. Woodrow Wilson, The Study of Administration. Greetings and salutations, all you excellent individuals out there in the DHP audience. CJ here, welcome to episode 197 of the Dangerous History Podcast, Woodrow Wilson, part 4. And I know I've been saying that this part, part 4 of the Woodrow Wilson series, was going to be an overview of Wilson's intellectual and academic output, all of his writings, his articles and books and things that he did during his decades as an academic. And I'm still working on that larger episode. But what happened was that episode was getting so enormous in terms of my notes for it, and it still is going to be enormous. But one of the things that was happening was that this one essay that I'm going to be drilling into in this episode called The Study of Administration I think this is one of the most important things, perhaps the most important thing, of Wilson's entire scholarly output, to really understanding both him and how he thought about modern government, and also, in a large extent, understanding the growth and evolution of the United States government, particularly in terms of the bureaucratic leviathan state that regulates and enforces laws and does all that sort of stuff, the administrative state. My notes just discussing this one essay were getting so enormous, I said, you know what? This needs to be detached into its own episode. There's plenty here to make a full DHP episode all its own. So that's what I'm doing here. I am digging in to this particular article that was published first all the way back in 1887, pretty early in Wilson's career. So we are diving deep into this article. We are dissecting it. And of course, I'll be doing so from quite a hostile, critical point of view, as you might imagine. But first, I just have a few important announcements. First is I want to remind everybody that you're not getting all the DHP that exists and that will exist if you're just subscribing on the regular podcast feed. If you instead become a supporter of the show via either Patreon or Subscribestar, you'll be able to access additional Dangerous History podcast material that's not available anywhere else. So starting off at the lowest level of support for only $2 per month, you'll get access to the so-called Vintage DHP episodes, the first 52 episodes of the show. 
And there's some really cool stuff in there. The production isn't always the greatest because I was learning how to podcast on the fly, but the content I still stand by. And so among the things that you'll find covered in Vintage DHP episodes would be my five-part history of the U.S. dollar series that goes all the way from the origins of the dollar into modern times, seeing how the dollar has changed in terms of what it is and how it's been manipulated by the powers that be. You'll get my episode on Operation Paperclip, saving Nazi war criminals so that they could come work for Team America. You'll get my episodes on Colonel Edward Mandel House and a second episode just on his book, Philip Drew Administrator. You'll get an episode on COINTELPRO. You'll get my two-part series, America Does Mangala, which covers the U.S. government's radiation experiments as well as the CIA's mind control experiments in the mid-20th century. You'll get my multi-part series on the Bronze Age collapse in ancient history. You'll get my overview of World War I. You'll get my DHP hero spotlights on Carl Hess and Lysander Spooner, as well as coverage of the Spanish-American War and the Philippines War. So for just two bucks a month, you get access to all that. Now, for five bucks per month, you get all that, plus ad-free episodes of DHP episodes as they come out. And also for five bucks a month, you will get access to DHP bonus episodes. Some of the topics I've covered on those include Samurai and Ninjas, Operation Northwoods, my two-part series on the naval aspects of the not-so-civil war in great depth, me reading some of my published short fiction, movie reviews, including my movie review of Demolition Man with my good buddy Joshua, formerly of the Dusty Den podcast. You'll also get access to my bonus episode, Corporate Abe, The Other Side of the Lincoln Administration. And you will get my two-part mini-series, Just Completed, Guns and Gunmen of the Not-So-Civil War, bonus episodes 23 and 24, each of which is over two hours long, the first of which covers kind of the standard weaponry and standard tactics of the war, and the second of which covers a lot of the specialized gear, particularly relating to sharpshooters. I have a lot on Civil War sharpshooters and snipers. So anyway, five bucks per month, all that. And then, of course, 15 bucks per month gets you access to the Dangerous History Lyceum online lecture course, where I'm currently a couple episodes into my course entitled Rise of the American Empire. So I just wanted to remind you all about all that. And then once more, I want to mention the upcoming Encore presentation of the School Sucks University Ideas into Action Virtual Summit, of which I was a part. This encore presentation of this event will happen on three consecutive Saturdays, March 7th, 14th, and 21st of 2020. And you will hear from a whole bunch of top-notch content creators on how they do research, gather the best evidence, sort it out, organize your thoughts, make more effective presentations, all these sorts of skill sets. And it really is a top-notch lineup of people that I'm very honored and humbled to sort of be in the company of. Zach Slayback, one of the founders of Praxis, Steve Patterson of Patterson in Pursuit, Michael Malice, of course, author of Dear Reader and hosts of the show You're Welcome, as well as the show Nightshade, entrepreneur and business coach Kevin Geary of digitalambition.co, Author and researcher Kevin Cole, who works on Tragedy and Hope and Unity of the Polis, and was involved with the production of The Ultimate History Lesson, A Weekend with John Taylor Gatto. Scott Hambrick, founder of Online Great Books. 
Tom Woods, of course, of many things, including the Tom Woods Show. Moritz Burling, business consultant and former director of research at Exosphere. Richard Grove, director of The Ultimate History Lesson, A Weekend with John Taylor Gatto, the creator of Tragedy and Hope, and the creator of the online course Autonomy. Jay Dyer, author of Esoteric Hollywood and creator of the show Jay's Analysis. As well as, of course, your humble, dangerous history helmsman, me. And it's just hours of content of accomplished people explaining how they do things, like find information, sort out conflicting points of view and conflicting information, organize it as well as present it. As one of the presenters, I've been able to check out the other presentations, and it's all very interesting stuff. So anyway, if you want to sign up for this, there will be a link in the show notes. And please make sure you use the coupon code PROFCJ, P-R-O-F-C-J, all one word. This code will knock 30% off the price of you registering for this online virtual summit. And it'll also make sure that I get a commission for having referred you over. So please check that out there. Again, link in the show notes, coupon code PROFCJ. So anyway, let's jump into the study of administration. In my opinion, based on the research and reading I've done so far, one of the most important of Woodrow Wilson's writings in terms of giving us a real window into his thinking, perhaps the most important piece of writing, I'm not sure, um, and a piece of work that clearly influenced his presidency and the subsequent course of American liberalism or center-left progressivism or whatever you want to call it over the course of the 20th century, is this scholarly article that he wrote fairly early in his academic career, an academic article or essay titled The Study of Administration, which was first published in the July 1887 issue of Political Science Quarterly, when Wilson was only 30 years old. So I'm going to take this one apart, perhaps in more detail than any other single one of Wilson's writings that I'll be referencing, you know, in the next episode when I give the overview of his academic work. This article is actually widely considered very important, not just by me. It even has its own relatively brief Wikipedia page, which, you know, how many scholarly journal articles, particularly that are 130 years old, have their own Wikipedia page, however brief? And this brief Wikipedia page on this article includes the following statement. It, meaning this essay, is widely considered a foundational article in the field of public administration making Wilson one of the field's founding fathers, along with Max Weber and Frederick Winslow Taylor. And of course, I'll put a link in the show notes of this episode to the full text of the article. It's easily available online to read. So if you want to read it either before you listen to the rest of this episode, or you want to read it after you hear what I have to say about it, knock yourself out. I will say this, reading Woodrow Wilson's writings is not fun. And I don't just mean because... I vehemently disagree with almost every aspect of his ideology. 
which I do, and probably most of you listening do as well. I doubt that any diehard Wilsonians would be fans of this show, although you never know, I guess. But it's not fun reading. It's not just because I'm against his ideology, it's that I can't stand his writing style most of the time. I just find it very pedantic and excessively wordy and just pretentious. I don't enjoy it. You know, I can read stuff written by people that I vehemently disagree with on issues and ideology and still enjoy it if they're good writers. But I just don't find Wilson to be a very skillful or elegant writer most of the time. So the context of this essay, the historical context in which Wilson wrote it, was a national political debate going on in the U.S. in the Gilded Age over so-called civil service reform, which basically is the concept of replacing the so-called spoil system, in which the government bureaucracy was virtually completely replaced in terms of its manpower after every election, or at least every election resulting in a change of party control. And replacing that way of doing things with instead having professionalization of the bureaucracy, where people are hired and promoted based, at least in theory, on things like competitive examinations and job performance and other attempts at meritocracy. And the idea being that the bureaucrats or so-called civil servants will have a lifetime career as long as, you know, they perform reasonably well and behave reasonably well at their job. Of course, the argument in favor of making this change of civil service reform is obvious, right? Wouldn't hiring and promotion of government bureaucrats based on some form of meritocracy be preferable to having it all based on politics, elections, personal connections, and so on? Seems like it'd make it less corrupt. But there is a counter-argument. There actually is an argument that the spoil system has some redeeming qualities, and at least a few things where it might actually be preferable to professionalized career bureaucrats. And that is this. The problem with this professionalization of the bureaucracy is that then they're completely insulated from elections. And so by making the bureaucrats life-tenured men insulated from elections raises questions about accountability and about the ability of the bureaucracies to completely resist many types of changes that might be attempted as the result of an election, particularly a change of party. And that basically you might end up with something like a permanent government or deep state, where the vast majority of people who comprise the thing known as the U.S. government are lifetime career people who care not very much what happens as far as elections go, and who are able to resist, even if you replace the president and he replaces the cabinet heads, you know, the vast majority of the people actually running all these different agencies and bureaucracies are the same people who've been there forever. In the nature of bureaucracy, it's often very easy for people in middle and lower levels to, in various ways, resist attempts at change being foisted from above. And so this is why, you know, presidents come and go and say this, the CIA, the Defense Department, whatever it is, the FBI, the EPA, they mostly kind of keep doing the same stuff they've been doing. And you end up with way more continuity than change, and you end up with elections not actually leading to that much real-world change in terms of policy, particularly in sort of day-to-day -day how the government's running and what it's actually doing. So anyway, Wilson, for his part, was, of course, all in favor of civil service reform as it was understood in the Gilded Age. But in fact, he already, even as early as the 1880s, 
And even though he was only in his early 30s, he already wanted to go much further in drastically revamping the U.S. government's civil service bureaucracies. So he starts off in the first paragraph of the essay saying, quote, that the present movement called civil service reform must expand into efforts to improve not the personnel only, but also the organization and methods of our government offices, end quote. And he concludes this first paragraph saying, quote, it is the object of administrative study to discover, first, what government can properly and successfully do, and secondly, how it can do these proper things with the utmost possible efficiency and at the least possible cost, either of money or of energy. End quote. Notice, by the way, he says he wants to figure out not what the government should do, but what government can do. And as is generally the case with any sort of progressive, they rarely, if ever, seriously ask the question of what government ought, and therefore also ought not, to do. So the fields in which the administrative apparatus of the state are going to intervene into are not going to be determined by any coherent, worked-out idea of what government should and should not get involved with, but rather by a more practical idea of what government can do. Then, notice his reference to efficiency in that last quote I shared of his. This was a huge part of Progressivism 1.0, the late 19th, early 20th century version of progressivism, particularly of the more corporatist variety of which Wilson is basically going to be once he's president. Now, it may seem laughable to anyone who's an anarchist or any sort of libertarian or even many types of conservatives to think of one of the state's virtues as being efficiency and as doing things with the least cost of money and energy. That just seems hilarious and, and just insane. But Progressivism 1.0 really believed in the state's potential for efficiency, and that the state could actually be more efficient than the private sector in doing many, many things. And I would say that Progressivism 2.0, which is what I would call the FDR version of the 30s and 40s, that progressivism of that period was also generally a true believer in this concept that the state could actually be quite efficient. Now, a little ways further into the essay, Wilson describes administration as, quote, the most obvious part of government. It is the executive, the operative, the most visible side of government, and is, of course, as old as government itself, end quote. Wilson says that, until the late 19th century, administration got very little attention or coverage in English and American political science discourse, as well as political debate. Instead, constitutional questions about the structure of government institutions and how the laws are made have tended to dominate the Anglo-American discussions. Quote, the question was always, who shall make the law, and what shall the law be? The other question, how law should be administered with enlightenment, with equity, with speed, and without friction, was put aside as practical detail, which clerks could arrange after doctors had agreed on principles. End quote. So again, notice all his belief that the state can actually be quite efficient and all that sort of stuff, right? 
Wilson says that this neglect of administration basically worked out okay for a while because government and the Anglo-American tradition, at least prior to the mid-19th century, did relatively few things. But now, of course, Wilson is quite certain we are in a new historical era, so naturally things must change or evolve, as he would often say, to reflect the spirit of the time as per progressive ideology. So. Wilson is seeing the emergence of and is cheering on the further extension of what he refers to as the science of administration. Wilson says that in contrast to the British parliamentary system or the American Republican system, administration was always considered much more important in running a typical monarchical government because administration was basically all about figuring out the best ways of enacting the will of the sovereign. But now he believes that the same principle needs to apply in the era of what he calls modern democracy. Basically, his thinking is that just as the will of the monarch was carried out by administrators in old-style regimes, so now the will of the people, or entire nation, is the sovereign, and is to be executed by administrators as efficiently as possible. Quote, where government once might follow the whims of a court, it must now follow the views of a nation, end quote. So to Wilson, it's relatively simple. The sovereign will of the nation is now just going to take the place of the will of the monarch, directing a powerful administrative apparatus. Of course, the whole question of if there even is such a thing as the will of the people, and how you actually define it and ascertain it and so on, is, as always, left largely subjective and virtually undefined. The assumption usually on the part of people who think like Wilson is simply, well, enlightened progressive statesmen, like me, are able to figure out what the will of the people, right? As if there is such a thing as a singular will emanating from millions of diverse people of wildly differing backgrounds and priorities and ideologies and whatever. Of course, when you really think about it, the notion of there being a single will from a complex nation of millions and millions of wildly different people is just absolutely insane. But it's one of those things that you're not supposed to think about. You're just supposed to hear it, and it's just supposed to kind of then be assumed by you to be a thing. Wilson says that the will of the people is now demanding that the state do many more things, saying that the views of the people, quote, are steadily widening to new conceptions of state duty. So that, at the same time that the functions of government are every day becoming more complex and difficult, they are also vastly multiplying in number. Administration is everywhere putting its hands to new undertakings. End quote. As a specific example, he then points to the U.S. Postal Service as, in his opinion, an unqualified success story, and says that this system and its success, quote, points toward the early establishment of governmental control of the telegraph system, end quote. This, by the way, is a common theme of progressives, government control of, and in some cases outright ownership of, the key infrastructure of a nation, including its communication infrastructure. And of course, we see it later on with the FCC controlling radio and television, and more recently with various progressives urging far greater government control and regulation of the internet in the U.S. 
Wilson says that whether or not this specific policy comes to pass in regard to the telegraph of basically nationalizing it, that nonetheless, the government in the U.S., quote, must make itself master of masterful corporations, end quote. He then says that having more state control of corporations, quote, will require not a little wisdom, knowledge, and experience. Seeing every day new things which the state ought to do, the next thing is to see clearly how it ought to do them. This is why there should be a science of administration which shall seek to straighten the paths of government to make its business less unbusinesslike, to strengthen and purify its organization, and to crown its duties with dutifulness, end quote. So, this is clearly a man who thinks that government bureaucrats are, or at least can be in real life, some combination of perhaps wise sages and noble heroes. This is also a man with a rather awkward, clunky, wordy, pedantic writing style. Wilson then goes on to say that the English and American political traditions are behind on this science of administration and that it really is to continental Europe, especially France and Germany, that we need to look to begin to understand this so-called science. Quote, It has been developed by French and German professors. You know, like the ones who taught the men who taught Wilson in grad school, right? Back to Wilson. And is consequently in all parts adapted to the needs of a compact state and made to fit highly centralized forms of government. Whereas, to answer our purposes, it must be adapted, not to a simple and compact, but to a complex and multiform state, and made to fit highly decentralized forms of government. We must Americanize it. It must learn our constitutions by heart, must get the bureaucratic fever out of its veins, must inhale much free American air." Now, this to me is absurd. This is a crazy, irreconcilable contradiction. That you can take an authoritarian, statist approach to running state executive bureaucracies and somehow adapt them to the, relatively at the time, much more free, individualistic, and decentralized U.S. of the late 19th century, and do so in a way that doesn't either A, weaken the administrative state so much that it becomes irrelevant or non-functional, Or, on the flip side, B, have the administrative state irreconcilably change all that was relatively free and decentralized in the American system. It's possible that at this early point in his intellectual career, remember Wilson's only around 30 at the time he's writing this, he may have been unaware or in denial about the irreconcilability of trying to import continental status bureaucracy without either altering it beyond recognition or altering the American system of the time beyond recognition. I have a hard time believing, though, that a couple of decades later, when he's on the verge of entering politics, he still believed that such a reconciliation or synthesis of statism and anti-statism was possible. And of course, looking ahead, it's obvious that when there's going to be a contradiction between the European statism he wanted to import and the individualism and localism of the 19th century American system. Wilson is always going to come down on the side of the former against the latter, though he'll often employ the language and the idioms of the latter 
in order to try to make it seem like his changes are actually in harmony with the older American traditions, when in reality they're a sharp divergence from it. Wilson says that precisely because Germany, or really Prussia, which had only just unified Germany less than 20 years before Wilson wrote this, but that because Germany and France were, until relatively recently in history, absolutist monarchies, this led them to develop powerful centralized administrative states, and that as both started to become more relatively democratic and constitutional, they nonetheless kept this powerful centralized administrative apparatus in place. Quote, They did at last give the people constitutions in the franchise, but even after that they obtained leave to continue despotic by becoming paternal. End quote. This to me somewhat harkens to the argument made by Alexis de Tocqueville in his book The Old Regime and the French Revolution, in which Tocqueville mentions that the French Revolution continued and magnified pre-existing trends of centralization and empowerment of the state in France that had begun under the previous few centuries of monarchs, and that these trends of empowering and centralizing the state didn't end or decrease after the overthrow of the monarchy, but in fact amped up, and that the administrative state justified its continued existence with the end of the monarchy. Not only its continued existence, but its further empowerment by invoking paternalism. This is here to help the people. Wilson continues, quote, They made themselves too efficient to be dispensed with, too smoothly operative to be noticed, too enlightened to be inconsiderately questioned, too benevolent to be suspected, too powerful to be coped with, end quote. So Wilson's writing here is among the most poetic and eloquent prose that he ever wrote. And it's in the context of talking about the wonderful efficiency, enlightenment, benevolence, and power of the French and German state bureaucracies. He's never so gushing and so fawning when he's talking about individual rights and liberties. Usually quite the opposite. But he's suddenly waxing poetic when praising centralized administrative bureaucracies. Now, Wilson, of course, thinks that by the 1880s, it's high time for the U.S. to try to play catch-up in bringing its administrative apparatus closer to continental European standards. Of course, he'll repeatedly state that he wants this to happen in some way with the U.S. keeping its more individualistic and decentralized traditions. But again, to me, that's just a ridiculously unrealistic expectation. That you can reconcile those American traditions with Eurostatism. One of them has to win over the other in the end. And again, as Wilson's presidency and the century of American history following it show, it's almost always going to be the Eurostatism that wins, with, at best, just sort of a superficial veneer of American individualistic and decentralist rhetoric. Anyway, Wilson goes on in this essay to claim that what he calls highly developed political systems have all gone through three historical phases. The first being absolute monarchy, with an administrative apparatus that is geared towards simply carrying out the monarch's will. 
Next, they evolved through a phase of crafting a constitution and instituting some significant degree of popular control of the government. And during this second phase, Wilson says, administration gets neglected because everyone's focused on setting up the constitutional democratic state's main institutions, like the legislative, executive, and judicial authorities. And then the third phase is when, as Wilson puts it, quote, the sovereign people undertake to develop administration under this new constitution, end quote. Wilson says that the states which are the most advanced when it comes to phase three are those which had rulers that were, quote, absolute but also enlightened, end quote, because, quote, in such governments, the administration has been organized to subserve the general wheel with simplicity and effectiveness, vouchsafed only to the undertakings of a single will. End quote. Like many center-left statists, Wilson will often praise many aspects of authoritarian regimes, as long as they are quote-unquote enlightened. Though, of course, He'll periodically backpedal and throw in a token criticism of their authoritarianism and or a token phrase in favor of democracy. John Maynard Keynes, among many others, also springs to mind as an example of someone who would also do this in his writings. Wilson then goes on to praise the Prussian administrative state as developed by Frederick the Great and Frederick Wilhelm III, calling the result, quote, an admirable system, end quote. Wilson then addresses the case of France, saying that the period of revolutionary republicanism in between the overthrow of monarchy and the rise of Napoleon was just a brief interruption of France's development of a strong, centralized, top-down administrative state. And during this brief break, France only started, but didn't complete the phase two constitution-making phase that we mentioned a moment ago and that Napoleon's takeover marked a return to the trend of building a strong administrative state. And he says that Napoleon, quote, succeeded the monarchs of France to exercise a power as unrestricted as they had ever possessed, end quote. And he says that this was another example, other than Prussia, of what he calls, quote, the perfecting of civil machinery by the single will of an absolute ruler before the dawn of a constitutional era. No corporate popular will could ever so have affected arrangements such as those which Napoleon commanded. Arrangements so simple at the expense of local prejudice, so logical in their indifference to popular choice, might be decreed by a constituent assembly, but they could be established only by the unlimited authority of a despot. End quote. Wilson then describes the cases of the U.S. and U.K. as situations where a nation got bogged down in Phase 2 for so long that it neglected the development of the administrative aspects of the state. Wilson says that, quote, The English race has long and successfully studied the art of curbing executive power to the constant neglect of the art of perfecting executive methods, end quote by which he means administration, which, of course, means the government bureaucrats and enforcers that actually carry out the executive functions of the state on a day-to-day -day basis. So, you know, the president, for example, is the head of the executive branch of the American system, 
But obviously, he isn't the one actually out there enacting the laws and regulations on the front lines in the trenches. He's at most overseeing the bureaucracies that actually do these things. Now, Wilson, for all of his Anglophilia and Anglo-Saxonism, nonetheless laments this aspect of British and American political development. Quote, English and American political history has been a history, not of administrative development, but of legislative oversight, not of progress in governmental organization, but of advance in lawmaking and political criticism. Consequently, we have reached a time when administrative study and creation are imperatively necessary to the well-being of our governments, saddled with the habits of a long period of constitution-making. We go on criticizing when we ought to be creating. So many nations are ahead of us in administrative organization and administrative skill. End quote. Now, after this lamentation, Wilson makes sure to backtrack a little bit to make clear he's not an unqualified proponent of continental despotism and that he's not entirely opposed to the Anglo-American tradition. Quote, of course, all reasonable preference would declare for this English and American course of politics rather than for that of any European country. We should not like to have had Prussia's history for the sake of having Prussia's administrative skill. It is better to be untrained and free than to be servile and systematic. Still, there is no denying that it would be better yet to be both free in spirit and proficient in practice. End quote. Somehow he thinks you can square liberty with an ultra-powerful bureaucratic state. Wilson says that the main thing in the way of better administration in a country like the U.S. is both the theory and the practice of so-called popular sovereignty. He writes, quote, It is harder for democracy to organize than for monarchy. We have enthroned public opinion. The very fact that we have realized popular rule in its fullness has made the task of organizing that rule just so much the more difficult. In order to make any advance at all, we must instruct and persuade a multitudinous monarch called public opinion, a much less feasible undertaking than to influence a single monarch called a king." End quote. In other words, if the goal is a so-called enlightened sovereign, this is easier to bring about when there is a single individual sovereign than if there is popular sovereignty of the entire citizenry. Wilson says that you had to previously deal with the fact that absolute rulers weren't always good or wise, but that now, in systems based on popular sovereignty, there are similar issues, but they're harder to deal with because you're dealing with so many people instead of just one. He writes that, quote, the many, the people who are sovereign have no single ear which one can approach and are selfish, ignorant, timid, stubborn, or foolish with the selfishnesses, the ignorances, the stubbornnesses, the timidities, or the follies of several thousand persons. Albeit, there are hundreds who are wise. The reformer is bewildered by the fact that the sovereign's mind has no definite locality, 
but is contained in a voting majority of several million heads. End quote. He then goes on to lament the various ignorances and prejudices of the masses and says that because of this, quote, wherever regard for public opinion is a first principle of government, practical reform must be slow and all reform must be full of compromises. End quote. Wilson then lays out the challenge for the would be progressive reform minded leader. Quote, Whoever would effect a change in a modern constitutional government must first educate his fellow citizens to want some change. That done, he must persuade them to want the particular change he wants. He must first make public opinion willing to listen, and then to see to it that it listen to the right things. He must stir it up to search for an opinion, and then manage to put the right opinion in its way." And here we have Wilson's conception of modern democracy. What in reality is a system of top-down elitism and paternalism, in which allegedly enlightened leaders convince the masses what things they should vote for and support. They then do this, and then the legislature, under the guidance if not the outright control of the executive— passes whatever laws and creates whatever bureaus or institutions are deemed necessary to do this. And then, of course, it's at that point up to heroic frontline bureaucrats in the trenches of the state to carry out the administration as efficiently as possible, of course. Wilson points out the challenges of doing this given the diversity in America. Even as far back as the 1880s, when the country was much less diverse than it is in our day, Already, it was much more diverse than, say, just about any country in Europe. So Wilson writes, quote, To know the mind of this country, one must know the mind not of Americans of the older stocks only, by which, of course, he means Anglo-Saxons, but also of Irishmen, of Germans, of Negroes. In order to get a footing for new doctrine, one must influence minds cast in every mold of race. Minds inheriting every bias of environment, warped by the histories of a score of different nations, warmed or chilled, closed or expanded by almost every climate of the globe. End quote. Notice the racialist essentialism here, right? That because of their ethnicity, people are just conditioned to have different political attitudes and preferences and to be suited for different political systems. Wilson begins the next section of the essay by making an argument to essentially insulate or perhaps almost entirely separate the task of administration from actual electoral politics. And again, notice the implications of this for creating a permanent or deep state. Wilson writes, quote, The field of administration is a field of business. It is removed from the hurry and strife of politics. It at most points stands apart even from the debatable ground of constitutional study. End quote. Now, this conflation of state activity of any sort with business, even if it's only by analogy, is in my mind an error, and it is a common error of thinking to this day. Though these days it tends to be more common in the language of kind of center-right 
American politics. People who, I believe, are actually in a number of ways really progressives, even though they would never identify as such. And you'll hear them say things like, we need businessmen to get into politics, and we need to make politics and government and government services run more like businesses, etc. The problem with this way of thinking is that there are too many very important key things of normal private sector businesses that are absent, and in fact are often just the opposite when it comes to state activity. And by the way, here I'm including both direct state activity, as well as things such as public-private partnerships, so-called, and also contracting, both in the military context and elsewhere, as well as state-directed so-called privatization, such as private prisons and private companies making exorbitant profits off of government schooling, like the companies that make textbooks and make the standardized tests and all that sort of stuff. The key difference is that in genuine private sector business activity, consumers can choose whether and to what degree to patronize any business, and they can stop at any time. And as a result, there's a market feedback mechanism of ultimate consumer sovereignty in the profit and loss mechanism. This is completely absent in direct state activity, and it's either mostly or entirely absent in state-directed mandated in or controlled activity carried out by nominally private companies. So to try and sum it up succinctly, taxpayers ultimately don't have a choice in the same way that consumers or customers do. Anyway, Wilson, who usually and pretty consistently claimed to prefer an organic evolutionary approach to government, here actually advocates some sort of abstract theorizing when it comes to administration, saying, quote, The object of administrative study is to rescue executive methods from the confusion and costliness of empirical experiment and set them upon foundations laid deep in stable principle. End quote. He says that the civil service reform efforts going on at the time he was writing this essay, again, the Gilded Age, are just the first step in making government administration more quote-unquote business-like, and that it will do this by improving the morality of government bureaucracy, quote, by establishing the sanctity of public office as a public trust, and by making the service unpartisan, it is opening the way for making it business-like. By sweetening its motives, it is rendering it capable of improving its methods of work. End quote. And I'm sorry, but this is just fucking gross. I almost threw up in my mouth a little bit just quoting that. This is a guy with an understanding of the nature of bureaucracies in general, and state bureaucracies in particular, that's completely divorced from reality. He seems to have no real-world understanding of human psychology and motivation, and how people respond to incentives, and how incentives work and get warped inside a bureaucratic organization. He thinks there are some magical reforms that can completely avoid all the institutional dysfunction that inevitably happens in hierarchical bureaucratic organizations, particularly in ones that are insulated from any real sort of competition or market feedback. Next, Wilson makes a move that is a defining element 
of Progressivism 1.0. The belief that while politics should ultimately be democratic, though of course what exactly that means is quite a question in itself, but that while politics should be democratic, administration really needs to be separated, insulated, and protected from democracy. Wilson writes that, quote, Administration lies outside the proper sphere of politics. Administrative questions are not political questions. Although politics sets the task for administration, it should not be suffered to manipulate its offices. End quote. This, by the way, I would argue is the root cause of the development of Kafkaesque permanent deep state institutions, which are always problematic to liberty, but are particularly threatening to it when you're talking about so-called national security state institutions, things like military force, law enforcement, surveillance, espionage, and so forth. Because these things are even more secret than other parts of the government, and even more quick and capable of deploying all kinds of foul methods to get their way. Now, like we've mentioned before, the argument in favor of civil service reform, that of making government bureaucrats life-tenured and at least theoretically promoted on merit, is that it reduces corruption and it replaces people getting jobs and promotions just based on things like political connections with people getting jobs and promotions based on competence. Of course, in real life, this breaks down in practice to a large degree, but even before you get to that point, there's still this problem if you believe in democracy and popular sovereignty and elections and all that stuff. If you insulate most of what the state actually is and does from elections, then you make elections largely irrelevant and meaningless. In other words, kind of like what we have now, where presidents come and go of different parties and different personal characteristics and so on, and the parties play musical chairs, trading control back and forth of who's got the House and or the Senate every few years. And yet, despite all these elections going on all the time, the vast majority of what the state is and what the state does doesn't change significantly in any measurable way, almost at all, other than on rare occasions as the result of an election. And on the rare occasions where politicians do try to make some significant change, the permanent deep state pushes back often very effectively. Furthermore, whether Wilson realized it or not, separating administration from politics is going to end up meaning in 20th and 21st century America that you're going to get regulatory agencies who, once they're established and empowered by the Congress, are then able to issue regulations, which have the force of law, and do so simply unilaterally by fiat, without even having to have things passed and voted on by the alleged representatives of the people, i.e. the legislature. So, while Wilson seems to think these administrative agencies will just carry out the directives of the Congress, in reality, they're going to get up off the table like a Frankenstein's monster and have a will of their own. Wilson even articulates an early idea of technocracy, though he doesn't use that word anywhere that I caught in this essay. But he hits at the concept, while he's advocating separating administration from politics, 
where he quotes the German political scientist Johann Bluntschli, who actually was a teacher of several of the professors who in turn taught Wilson. And he quotes Bluntschli saying, quote, Politics is thus the special province of the statesman, administration of the technical official. End quote. Wilson then draws a distinction between what he calls constitutional questions and what he calls administrative questions, saying that the former are, quote, governmental adjustments which are essential to constitutional principle, end quote, and that the latter are adjustments, quote, which are merely instrumental to possibly changing purposes of a wisely adapting convenience, end quote. To me, this is not terribly helpful in understanding this distinction. It's kind of a bit of word salad, which honestly is quite common in Wilson's academic writing. A bit further on, he elaborates a little more on this distinction, saying, quote, Public administration is detailed in systematic execution of public law. Every particular application of general law is an act of administration, end quote. Wilson names some potential examples of what he means by this, and he names things like the collection of taxes, the execution of a criminal, the delivery of the mail, recruiting for and equipping of the military. These are acts of administration, he says, but he says that the laws that form the basis for these actions being carried out are, quote, obviously outside of and above administration. The broad plans of government action are not administrative. The detailed execution of such plans is administrative. Constitutions, therefore, properly concern themselves only with those instrumentalities of government which are to control general law. End quote. So it seems that what he's saying is that administration and actual lawmaking are to be separated and that administration is nominally supposed to be, you know, subordinate to or the instrument of carrying out the laws, but that administration should be given a free hand, for the most part, to do what it sees fit to carry things out. Wilson then addresses the issue of potential suspicion of the general population, the citizenry, the public towards state administrators. Quote, All sovereigns are suspicious of their servant, and the sovereign people is no exception to the rule. But how is its suspicion to be allayed by knowledge? If that suspicion could but be clarified into wise vigilance, it would be altogether salutary. If that vigilance could be aided by the unmistakable placing of responsibility, it would be altogether beneficent. Suspicion in itself is never healthful, either in the private or in the public mind. Trust is strength in all relations of life. End quote. So he's trying to explain how administrators should earn the trust of the citizenry, and he says that you need to start by clearly defining who's responsible for what. In this vein, he goes on to say that, quote, Large powers and unhampered discretion seem to me the indispensable conditions of responsibility. End quote. Let me repeat that one more time. Wilson's words. Quote, Large powers and unhampered discretion 
seem to me the indispensable conditions of responsibility. End quote. Wilson is saying that giving a government administrative agency lots of power and discretion is important to making it responsible. Yes, he's actually making that argument. This is how to make sure there's clear responsibility, and therefore that the people will trust the administrators. By giving the administrators a ton of power. Because this, Wilson says, will allow the public to clearly be able to identify who's responsible for a particular administrative action, and then to assign praise if it's good or blame if it's bad. Wilson then goes on to say some of the craziest stuff in this entire article, writing, quote, There is no danger in power, if only it be not irresponsible. If it be divided, dealt out in shares to many, it is obscured. If it be obscured, it is made irresponsible. But if it be centered in the heads of the service and in heads of branches of the service, it is easily watched and brought to book. If to keep his office a man must achieve open and honest success, and if at the same time he feels himself entrusted with large freedom of discretion, the greater his power, the less likely is he to abuse it, the more he is nerved and sobered and elevated by it. The less his power, the more safely obscure and unnoticed does he feel his position to be, and the more readily does he lapse into remissness. End quote. He actually says if a government official is given more power, he's less likely to abuse it, and his morals will be elevated by it. Yes, he actually is making the argument that government officials are less dangerous if they have more power, and more dangerous if they have less power. If I'm getting all this correctly, He's saying that by diffusing power, you diffuse responsibility, and this creates a higher likelihood of danger and problems. He thinks that the dangers of too much concentrated state power in the hands of one bureaucracy, or even of one bureaucrat, are somehow less dangerous than the dangers of diffused responsibility created by diffused power, because somehow he thinks that the ultra-powerful bureaucrat will actually be held accountable by public opinion to a much greater extent than would the much less powerful bureaucrat, and that the ultra-powerful bureaucrat is actually more likely to behave better because the power will actually elevate his sense of duty and morality. Wilson actually believes that more power will have a positive effect on things like morality and corruption and so on. This to me is absolute insanity, and is contradicted by virtually all of recorded human history, as well as by a mountain now of psychology and neuroscience and other things. And while sure, you can let Wilson off the hook for not knowing some of the recent science on this from his perch back in the Gilded Age when he was writing this article, 
it wasn't like various philosophers and thinkers hadn't figured out the dangers of concentrated power and the corrupting effects of power for thousands of years before Wilson. And surely Wilson, as a guy who spent as much time in university as he did, must have been exposed to some of these other writers and philosophers and so on. But no, he's pretty sure that thousands of years of collected wisdom about the dangers of concentrated power, he's like, nah, it's just the opposite. It's insanity. Anyway, Wilson then goes on to address what he calls the, quote, fundamental problem of this whole study, end quote, which is, as he puts it, quote, what part shall public opinion play in the conduct of administration, end quote. To which he answers, quote, that public opinion shall play the part of authoritative critic, end quote. Wilson says that the exact method by which public opinion plays this role is important. Public opinion's influence on administration somehow needs to be simultaneously authoritative and yet also very limited, so that expert technocrats can have the power and discretion that Wilson wants them to have. This to me is a bit like arguing that, well, what we need to have here is a square circle. But, you know, whatever, it wouldn't be the first self-contradictory claim I've come across in Wilson's writings. Not by a long shot. Wilson writes, quote, Our peculiar American difficulty in organizing administration is not the danger of losing liberty, but the danger of not being able or willing to separate its essentials from its accidents. Our success is made doubtful by that besetting error of ours, the error of trying to do too much by vote. Self-government does not consist in having a hand in everything any more than housekeeping consists necessarily in cooking dinner with one's own hands. The cook must be trusted with a large discretion as to the management of the fires in the ovens. End quote. In other words, you've got to delegate to expert technocrats. Wilson sees late 19th century Americans as too habituated to actually having a say in how things are run. They're not habituated yet, like, say, the French or German people, to letting the technocrats have a free hand to administrate. Wilson actually says of this, quote, In trying to instruct our own public opinion, we are dealing with a pupil apt to think itself quite sufficiently instructed beforehand. The problem is to make public opinion efficient without suffering it to be meddlesome, end quote. So in other words, putting this all together, Wilson wants public opinion to be authoritative over the administrative apparatus but not in any kind of minute, micromanaging, specific sort of way, only in terms of occasionally chiming in on big-picture questions and issues via elections. And furthermore to that, public opinion shouldn't ultimately be something that spontaneously arises from the citizenry's own thoughts and beliefs and experiences and so on. But instead, it needs to be molded and guided and instructed by elite experts on politics and administration, men like Wilson himself, of course. This is a theme that can be found in much of Wilson's other work, and that he fleshed out more later on. The idea that the will of the people should ultimately be sovereign, but that elite leaders had to basically, in a top-down sort of way, shape and guide public opinion to do what they, the elite leaders, knew to be the right things. In other words, lead the people to the right answers, and then let the will of the people decide. This is a version of democracy that's ultimately not very democratic at all. It's 
very elitist, top-down, and paternalistic. We need to have democracy, but we need to make sure the masses are properly led by the no's, by the elites, to vote for and support what the elites know are the right things. This is the view of democracy that you find in the kind of establishment of the American media and politics and so on. This is why they hate populism so much. In this view, the majority are just sort of ballast or sheep to be manipulated by politicians and technocrats. Now, I don't deny that in practice, this is usually what democracy, especially on a large scale, ends up being. I just disagree with Wilson that this is a good and desirable system and that it should be fostered and increased. By the way, this notion of having democracy but also having public opinion deliberately manipulated is articulated much more a few decades later by real experts on this area, men like Edward Bernays, Walter Lippmann, and several others, men who, by the way, worked in the Committee on Public Information set up by the Wilson administration during World War I to propagandize the public for war in that instance. This overall idea of the relationship of elites to the masses, to democracy, and so on, is also quite similar to Noam Chomsky's idea of the manufacturing of consent, although Chomsky, of course, unlike Wilson, Bernays, and Lippmann, is opposed to the practice because he sees it actually as very undemocratic or even anti-democratic. But Wilson, like we said, argues that public opinion should factor into big-picture questions periodically, presumably through elections every few years, but that otherwise it should not have a say in the day-to-day running of things. Wilson then briefly turns to the topic of education and says that a greater effort needs to be made to develop educational programs and institutions geared toward training technocratic administrators. He writes, quote, If we are to improve public opinion, we must prepare better officials as the apparatus of government. It will be necessary to organize democracy by sending up to the competitive examinations for the civil service men definitely prepared for standing liberal tests as to technical knowledge. End quote. I love those phrases. Improve public opinion. Organize democracy. Yeah, mind control. Propaganda. Manipulating people. Wilson then raises and responds to a likely worry or objection to the idea of having these specialist technocratic administrators running stuff. These career civil servants, right? Namely, that they might become a distinct class with their own vested interests that don't actually coincide with the common good or the general will or the will of the people or whatever. Wilson says that the administrative system he's describing might seem, quote, to a great many very thoughtful persons to contain elements which might combine to make an offensive official class, a distinct semi-corporate body with sympathies divorced from those of a progressive, free-spirited people, and with hearts narrowed to the meanness of a bigoted officialdom, end quote. In other words, some people might actually worry that a powerful administrative bureaucracy in the U.S. that's insulated from elections might evolve the same negative tendency that has happened in literally everywhere else a powerful administrative bureaucracy has been created. Wilson admits 
that if this happened in America, it would be bad. And he says, quote, Certainly such a class would be altogether hateful and harmful in the United States. End quote. But have no fear. Wilson has a simple way to prevent American administrative bureaucracy from ending up with all the negative features of administrative bureaucracies everywhere else. And it's super easy, barely an inconvenience. Quote, to fear the creation of a domineering, illiberal officialdom as a result of the studies I am here proposing is to miss altogether the principle upon which I wish most to insist. That principle is that administration in the United States must be, at all points, sensitive to public opinion. End quote. The same public opinion, by the way, that he has just a little earlier warned against letting have too much meddling interference in administration. And also the same public opinion that he just a little earlier said needs to be basically manipulated by politicians and administrators themselves as to what sort of administration they, the general public, should want. Wilson then says that obviously administrators should only keep their positions as long as they exhibit good behavior, which he defines in the following terms. Quote, steady, hearty allegiance to the policy of the government they serve will constitute good behavior. That policy will have no taint of officialdom about it. It will not be the creation of permanent officials, but of statesmen, by which he means elected politicians, whose responsibility to public opinion will be direct and inevitable. Bureaucracy can exist only where the whole service of the state is removed from the common political life of the people, its chiefs as well as its rank and file. It would be difficult to point out any examples of impudent exclusiveness and arbitrariness on the part of officials doing service under a chief of departments who really serve the people, as all our chiefs of departments must be made to do. End quote. So he's literally saying that an American administrative apparatus with much more power isn't even going to be bureaucracy. And he's basically saying that as long as there are elected politicians ultimately overseeing and directing the administrators, you simply will not end up with a quote-unquote offensive official class with its own interests that diverge or even conflict with the interest of the average citizens. And all I've got to say for that is, how's that working out for you? Dealt with the DMV lately? I mean, think of any government agency from local to state to federal that you may have had to had contact with or deal with in some way. How often have you gotten a sense that many of the people working in these agencies and bureaucracies thought of themselves and behaved as if they were a quote-unquote offensive official class who acted quote-unquote domineering and or quote-unquote illiberal and who obviously seemed to have their own interests and priorities that didn't always line up with serving you as best they could. Wilson closes out this section of the essay with the following horseshit pipe dream fantasy. Quote, The ideal for us is a civil service cultured and self-sufficient enough to act with sense and vigor, and yet so intimately connected with the popular thought by means of elections and constant public counsel as to find arbitrariness of class spirit quite out of the question. End quote. And this is just wishful thinking. This is fucking fantasy. This 
shows an ignorance, what I can only imagine must be a willful ignorance, given how much education this guy had, about human beings and institutions and how they work, based on things like psychology and economics that look at things like how people respond to incentives and how people change when they're given more power to wield and so forth. Well, again, Obviously, I'm not expecting Wilson to be familiar with 20th and early 21st century work on this sort of thing from his perspective in the 1880s. Still, even back then, like I said before, there were plenty of people from various backgrounds and fields of inquiry who already had done some analysis of the phenomenon of the deep problems of so-called offensive official classes. But Wilson just hand waves this away by saying that's ah, not a problem worth worrying about as long as there's some elections periodically for some people who are supposed to be overseeing the permanent career bureaucrats, everything will be fine. And again, if you'll recall from the quote I read a few minutes ago, he even said that administration in America wouldn't even really be bureaucracy at all, as long as public opinion has some influence. Well, the third and final section of the essay is mostly focused on calling for more comparative study of different governments around the world and throughout history, in order for administrators and statesmen to learn from the experiences of other nations. Wilson says that we shouldn't just study and learn from other democratic nations that are similar to ours, but also from more autocratic ones or authoritarian ones, too. Because freer governments still might be able to pick up some useful pointers from less free ones. He writes, quote, So far as administrative functions are concerned, all governments have a strong structural likeness. More than that, if they are to be uniformly useful and efficient, <coughs> sorry, I, I retched a little bit at the notion of government bureaucracies being uniformly useful and efficient. Anyway, um, back to Wilson. If they are to be uniformly useful and efficient, they must have a strong structural likeness. A free man has the same bodily organs, the same executive parts as the slave, however different may be his motives his services, his energies. Monarchies and democracies, radically different as they are in other respects, have in reality much the same business to look to. End quote. So he thinks that a democratic government can adopt some of the structures of authoritarian governments and not become more authoritarian in the process. And this, to me, is quite a bit like Horace Mann, for example, saying that the U.S. could adopt the Prussian education system, but do it for freedom instead of for authority. Somehow, the Prussian education system can be made to serve ends of freedom and not just serve the ends of authoritarianism it was designed for. Or thinking you can use Sauron's ring of power for good, for that matter. By the way, Wilson might, in a way, be more right than he realized in his statement that democracies and monarchies have, as he said, much the same business to look to. He's revealing, unintentionally, I'm sure, that all states are pretty similar when it comes to the rubber meeting the road. Which, as I would say it, is that all states, democracies, republics, monarchies, whatever, are ultimately in the business of controlling and exploiting human beings. They're ultimately tax farms. And as a result, they're all necessarily opposed to human freedom, in an absolute sense. Regardless of the method by which a particular state selects its rulers, or regardless of whether it's a more free-range tax form, or a more kind of small-cage factory tax form, 
Or in other words, we might say, democracy does not actually equal freedom. Wilson thinks it's simply ridiculous to fear that adopting government methods and institutions from less free states like Prussia might erode America's freedoms. He writes that Americans should not, quote, be frightened at the idea of looking into foreign systems of administration for instruction and suggestion in order to get rid of the apprehension that we might perchance blindly borrow something incompatible with our principles. That man is blindly astray who denounce attempts to transplant foreign systems into this country. It is impossible. They simply would not grow here. But why should we not use such parts of foreign contrivances as we want, if they be in any way serviceable? We are in no danger of using them in a foreign way. We borrowed rice, but we do not eat it with chopsticks. End quote. So he's saying that it would be simply impossible for things to be imported whole cloth from more authoritarian countries into the American system, and that such things that are adopted or imported would never actually have authoritarian effects here, because there's just something inherent about the American people that makes them have democratic and freedom-loving spirits. So just automatically, if, say, the U.S. adopts some method or institution from Prussia, it will only take root in America if it's adapted in such a way that it doesn't conflict with the inherent freeness of the American race. And make no mistake, Wilson is very much a racial essentialist on a lot of these things. He really believes that different quote-unquote races are at different levels of historical development, and that different ethnic groups are inherently more or less appreciative of and capable of living under things like democracy and greater individual freedoms and so forth and that this is just intrinsic to people based on their race. Some races are just fitted to be ruled in a more authoritarian way. And so, by definition, authoritarianism could never really be a problem in America, because racially, Americans, just, it wouldn't work. In fact, not only does Wilson say that we shouldn't worry about studying and adopting things potentially from more authoritarian regimes, Wilson actually says that American statesmen and administrators should deliberately study such governments that are the most different from America's, rather than the ones that are most similar to get new ideas. Another interesting statement where Wilson downplays any potential danger to democracy or freedom of doing these sorts of things is where he writes as follows, quote, we need not care a peppercorn for the constitutional or political reasons which Frenchmen or Germans give for their practices when explaining them to us. If I see a murderous fellow sharpening a knife cleverly, I can borrow his way of sharpening the knife without borrowing his probable intention to commit murder with it, end quote. Except this analogy has some real problems, because adopting a new knife-sharpening method isn't likely to have any real impact on the good man's morality or psychology or character. Whereas, adopting and implementing methods and institutions of government from more authoritarian regimes absolutely is likely to have an effect on changing the attitudes, beliefs, habits, and so on of a nation's people. It's going to habituate them away from being self-directed and self-reliant. It's going to habituate them towards being more passive, more docile, more submissive, and obedient. It's going to have what we might call a domesticating effect, 
on a nation's population, particularly over the course of multiple generations. I think we see its effects now when we look around. Average Americans are much more sheep-like than they were back before the implementation of Wilson's administrative leviathan. Their feisty individualism that Wilson thought was simply a racial characteristic has actually been significantly eroded through a modification of conditions and through multiple generations of training. And then when you add in government schools to this, through indoctrination and through many other techniques of propaganda and mind control that Wilson could never even have dreamed of. Wilson actually thinks you can foist new institutions on a people and more authority over them in terms of government, and that the effect is only going to be one way. The institutions will be molded by the character of the people, but that there really won't be any significant change going the other direction, in other words, of people being changed by these institutions. This is ridiculous, in my mind. Wilson begins to wrap up by again insisting that Americans can and should build a more powerful administrative state that won't conflict with their historical values. Quote, the principles on which to base a science of administration for America must be principles which have democratic policy very much to the heart. End quote. He also briefly throws in a reference to how this is supposed to work without harming the concept of federalism, which Wilson doesn't really seem to have been a fan of the concept at all, but he sort of realized that many Americans valued it, and so he realized you got to kind of work with that. So anyway, he writes, quote, Our duty is to supply the best possible life to a federal organization, to systems within systems, to make town, city, county, state, and federal governments live with a like strength and an equally assured healthfulness, keeping each unquestionably its own master, and yet making all interdependent and cooperative, combining independence with mutual helpfulness. End quote. And what a bunch of unrealistic, idealistic, and contradictory platitudes. Also, by the way, notice this is a guy who's just absolutely in love with government in general as a concept. But this idea that you could preserve any real semblance of federalism, once you start implementing Wilson's administrative state, is ridiculous. Because, of course, the reality as it is played out, first during Wilson's own presidency, and then ever since, has been the growing federal dominance over state and local government. Where state and local government, they still do things, but they don't have anything like the degree of decentralization and autonomy and independence over important matters that they used to. The reality is federal dominance over everything else, and it just gets more magnified every generation. While Wilson isn't 100% the originator of these ideas, he certainly is one of the biggest sources of these ideas in the American political science and then later actual political discourse. And I think it's pretty clear that his overall concept of administration is at the root of later real-world manifestations of it, not just his own progressive and war mobilization programs, but then of the so-called brain trust of FDR who masterminded the New Deal, right? These were a bunch of university-trained expert technocrats, academic economists who thought they could centrally plan the economy and 
sociologists who thought they could remake society, all these sorts of things. And then on down through kind of the middle ranks of running the New Deal bureaucracy once it gets going. These are these sorts of people. And then you see the same thing with the so-called best and brightest of the Kennedy and Johnson years. People like Robert McNamara thinking that you can run a war as if it's just a simple math equation. So these ideas of what government administration should be and how it should operate and how it should be put together and how men should get the positions in them and so forth clearly run in a direct line of intellectual descendants from Woodrow Wilson through the following iterations of progressivism in later decades. Wilson finishes off this essay with this, quote, Like principles of civil liberty are everywhere fostering like methods of government. And if comparative studies of the ways and means of government should enable us to offer suggestions which will practicably combine openness and vigor in the administration of such governments with ready docility to all serious, well-sustained public criticism, they will have proved themselves worthy to be ranked among the highest and most fruitful of the great departments of political study. That they will issue in such suggestions, I confidently hope. End quote. Yeah, well, all I can say is that ideas have consequences, and we're living in the consequences of the ideas of Woodrow Wilson and all the other late 19th and early 20th century progressive status who thought things would be better if only we lived under a much more powerful administrative state. Again, I think this essay is one of the most important of Wilson's academic intellectual career. Even though it was written when he was fairly young, he never deviated in theory, nor later in his political career in practice, from the overall principles he laid down here in any significant way. Now, before I wrap up here, I want to share a bit from a writer and intellectual who I find much preferable to Woodrow Wilson, both in terms of his ideas and in terms of his writing style. And that is the French intellectual Alexis de Tocqueville, author of, among many things, Democracy in America. And Democracy in America, if you've not read it, it's very much worth reading, in my opinion. Tocqueville was basically a classical liberal with some elements of European conservatism in his thinking as well. And he traveled extensively through antebellum, sort of Jacksonian-era America, and then published Democracy in America several decades before Woodrow Wilson was born. And what's fascinating is, one of his many profound insights where he kind of sees some things coming in the future way ahead of almost everybody else, is he sees the possibility of a new kind of soft form of tyranny as a real possibility for the United States. And he foresees a lot of the things that Wilson is talking about in positive terms, but Tocqueville has a much more foreboding take on what this might mean. But he sees not only the potential for a soft bureaucratic despotism arising in America, he also points out some of the contradictions that Wilson seems oblivious to in the study of administration. So anyway, let me share with you one of my favorite passages in Tocqueville's Democracy in America. And this is from Chapter 6, under the heading, What Sort of Despotism Democratic Nations Have to Fear? Tocqueville writes, quote, 
It would seem that if despotism were to be established among the democratic nations of our days, it might assume a different character, he means, in comparison to previous despotisms. Continuing with Tocqueville, it would be more extensive and more mild. It would degrade men without tormenting them. I seek to trace the novel features under which despotism may appear in the world. The first thing that strikes the observation is an innumerable multitude of men, all equal and alike, incessantly endeavoring to procure the petty and paltry pleasures with which they glut their lives. Above this race of men stands an immense and tutelary power, by which, of course, he means the state, which takes upon itself alone to secure their gratifications and to watch over their fate. That power is absolute, minute, regular, provident, and mild. It would be like the authority of a parent if, like that authority, its object was to prepare men for manhood. But it seeks, on the contrary, to keep them in perpetual childhood. It is well content that the people should rejoice, provided they think of nothing but rejoicing. For their happiness, such a government willingly labors, but it chooses to be the sole agent and the only arbiter of that happiness. It provides for their security, foresees and supplies their necessities, facilitates their pleasures, manages their principal concerns, directs their industry, regulates the descent of property, and subdivides their inheritances. What remains but to spare them all the care of thinking and all the trouble of living? Thus it every day renders the exercise of the free agency of man less useful and less frequent. It circumscribes the will within a narrower range and gradually robs a man of all the uses of himself. After having thus successfully taken each member of the community in its powerful grasp and fashioned him at will, the supreme power then extends its arm over the whole community. It covers the surface of society with a network of small, complicated rules, minute and uniform, through which the most original minds and the most energetic characters cannot penetrate to rise above the crowd. The will of man is not shattered, but softened, bent, and guided. Men are seldom forced by it to act, but they are constantly restrained from acting. Such a power does not destroy, but it prevents existence. It does not tyrannize, but it compresses, enervates, extinguishes, and stupefies a people till each nation is reduced to nothing better than a flock of timid and industrious animals, of which the government is the shepherd. I have always thought that servitude of the regular, quiet, and gentle kind which I have just described might be combined more easily than is commonly believed with some of the outward forms of freedom, and that it might even establish itself under the wing of the sovereignty of the people. End quote. So, Tocqueville, writing approximately 50 years before Wilson wrote The Study of Administration, is already anticipating the potential rising of an omnipotent and paternalistic bureaucracy in the United States, and is already seeing the effect such a powerful bureaucracy would have on the people of essentially turning them into sheep by removing them of the responsibilities for making their own decisions and running their own lives, and killing liberty through a thousand tiny paper cuts. 
But Tocqueville doesn't just see that coming. He also points out the contradiction in what someone like Woodrow Wilson argues for decades later, namely of separating this powerful bureaucracy from actual elective politics and what this really means. So continuing with Tocqueville, he writes, quote, Our contemporaries are constantly excited by two conflicting passions. They want to be led, and they wish to remain free. As they cannot destroy either the one or the other of these contrary propensities, they strive to satisfy them both at once. They devise a sole, tutelary, and all-powerful form of government, but elected by the people. They combine the principle of centralization and that of popular sovereignty. This gives them a respite. They console themselves for being in tutelage by the reflection that they have chosen their own guardians. Every man allows himself to be put in leading strings because he sees that it is not a person or a class of persons, but the whole people at large who hold the end of his chain. By this system, the people shake off their state of dependence just long enough to select their master and then relapse into it again. A great many persons at the present day are quite contented with this sort of compromise between administrative despotism and the sovereignty of the people, and they think they have done enough for the protection of individual freedom when they have surrendered it to the power of the nation at large. This does not satisfy me. The nature of him I am to obey signifies less to me than the fact of extorted obedience. I admit that, by this means, room is left for the intervention of individuals in the more important affairs. But it is not the less suppressed in the smaller and more private ones. It must not be forgotten that it is especially dangerous to enslave men in the minor details of life. For my own part, I should be inclined to think freedom less necessary in great things than in little ones. If it were possible to be secure of the one without possessing the other. Subjection in minor affairs breaks out every day and is felt by the whole community indiscriminately. It does not drive men to resistance, but it crosses them at every turn till they are led to surrender the exercise of their own will. Thus, their spirit is gradually broken and their character enervated, whereas that obedience which is exacted on a few important but rare occasions only exhibits servitude at certain intervals and throws the burden of it upon a small number of men. It is in vain to summon a people who have been rendered so dependent on the central power to choose from time to time the representatives of that power. This rare and brief exercise of their free choice, however important it may be, will not prevent them from gradually losing the faculties of thinking, feeling, and acting for themselves, and thus gradually falling below the level of humanity. I add that they will soon become incapable of exercising the great and only privilege which remains to them. The democratic nations that have introduced freedom into their political constitution at the very time when they were augmenting the despotism of their administrative constitution have been led into strange paradoxes. To manage those minor affairs in which good sense is all that is wanted, the people are held to be unequal to the task. But when the government of the country is at stake, when people are invested with immense powers, they are alternately made the playthings of their ruler and his masters 
more than kings and less than men. It is indeed difficult to conceive how men who have entirely given up the habit of self-government should succeed in making a proper choice of those by whom they are to be governed. A constitution, republican in its head and ultra-monarchical in all its other parts, has always appeared to me to be a short-lived monster. The vices of rulers and the ineptitude of the people would speedily bring about its ruin, and the nation, weary of its representatives and of itself, would create freer institutions or soon return to stretch itself at the feet of a single master. End quote. How right was Tocqueville? So I hope you've enjoyed my dissection in detail of this piece. The next Wilson episode will be more of an overview of his intellectual output as a whole, and it's going to be organized topically. It's going to be, you know, some of the ones I have in mind are things like Wilson's views on the nature of the state, Wilson's Manichaeanism, Wilson's intellectual influences, Wilson's views on U.S. history and the U.S. Constitution, etc. It'll be organized in sort of blocks like that. So it will be quite huge, probably at least a couple of hours long, maybe one and a half, two times as long as this episode, just digging into this one essay. So stay tuned for that. And as always, thanks for listening. I hope you've found some value in my detail stripping of the study of administration. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the Dangerous History Podcast, and I hope that you found some value in it. If you have and you'd like to contribute to my work, there are many different ways that you can help out. One that costs you nothing but maybe a little bit of time and effort is to help spread the word about the show to anyone you think might be interested in it. There are also a bunch of ways that you can financially assist me to continue doing the work that I do and to continue making it better as best I can as time goes on. The most helpful way and the one that gives you potentially a lot of value back in return is to sign up for a recurring contribution via either Patreon or Subscribestar, and the links to my Patreon page and my Subscribestar page will be in the show notes of this episode. I now have multiple levels of support via either Patreon or Subscribestar. For $2 per month, you are at the Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, and you will get access to all of the vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. And of course, you'll get the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping to keep this podcast going, and you'll have my gratitude for doing so. For only $5 per month, you will be at the Journeyman Scholar Warrior level. And for this, you'll receive the benefits of the $2 Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, plus access to special bonus DHP episodes that are available nowhere else as well as access to ad-free regular DHP episodes as they come out, and you will be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group. For $15 per month, you will be at the Scholar Warrior level, and you'll get all the benefits of the Journeyman level, plus access to Dangerous History Lyceum course lectures as they are produced and released. And for $25 per month, you'll be at the Master Scholar Warrior level, where you will get all the benefits of the $15 Scholar Warrior level, plus additional benefits still to be determined, but probably including but not limited to a regular live chat. You can also make one-time or recurring contributions to the Dangerous History Podcast via PayPal or Bitcoin. 
And another great way you can help out my work is by clicking on any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website to do your Amazon.com shopping. And if you buy stuff after going through any of those affiliate links, I get a little commission at no additional cost to you. And this helps me to buy supplies, research materials, etc. to keep making the podcast and making the podcast better. I also have an Amazon wish list of things to help me out with the Dangerous History podcast and related productions that I put in the show notes of episodes. It's mostly research materials, but also there's some stuff in there, hardware for audiovisual production, etc. So if you want to order me something off there, that also helps out. Your support and contributions are what keeps this thing going and keeps me doing the work that I do. So I hope that you will consider helping out. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. As always, doing my best to help you learn the past, understand the present, and prepare for the future.